everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. And today we're be beginning a deep dive into a series on racism and discrimination. I I'm convinced this is one of the biggest injustices facing our generation. But not only can we not agree on the solutions as a society, it seems that we're still incapable of even agreeing on the problems. I'm convinced the answers to life's most fundamental questions are found in the Bible. And so I've spent much of the summer searching the Bible and also listening to what people who have been on the receiving end of racism and discrimination have to say. As I've done that, I've learned that while some people hold that the Bible holds the answers, others claim that it's part of the problem. In fact, the Bible has been used to perpetuate racial discrimination and segregation continues to be a reality in much of the North American church. Does that mean that God is racist? Could the Bible actually make people more prejudiced? In this series, I'll attempt to reread the Bible in light of these questions and show how the Bible's teachings on race and discrimination have been twisted, denied, and ignored. My prayer is that you'll see the color of the Bible like never before and be filled with hope that God offers profound solutions to the racial injustice our world is confronting. To do that, we need to go back in history though. Once upon a time, there was no racism. And then there was. I believe that discrimination has always existed, but racism hasn't. For as long as there has been sin, there have been children who have picked on people who looked and act differently than them. There have been people with advantages that have looked down on people without them. There have been nations with power that have assumed superiority over those they can oppress. And discrimination in all its forms is cruel and unjust. But some scholars believe that the beginning of racism can be traced to a man named Gomez de Zarara. In 1434, he was hired by the King of Portugal to write a biography of his uncle, Prince Henry the Navigator. Up until that point, slavery was widespread, but it was practiced among people of all kinds of ethnicities. Prince Henry was determined to secure a reliable source of slave labor, and he wanted to cut out the North African middlemen that they, they had been reliant upon. He was the first European to travel directly to Sub-Saharan Africa to buy slaves, and he opened up the continent to a level of oppression that would last for hundreds of years. Zarara's role was to convince the rest of the world that what Prince Henry was doing was somehow virtuous. To do that, he grouped the African people under a single category. Despite the fact that they came from different countries with different ethnicities, different appearance and shades of skin color, he lumped them all together and described them as inferior in gross terms. When he published his biography, the message was that Prince Henry had delivered them and that slavery was an improvement for their lives. Europeans could now enslave people and feel good about it. Before long, the Portuguese traded exclusively in African peoples. And Zarara's ideas about an inferior race of people that would come to be identified by the color of their skin spread and would evolve into what today is known as racism the belief system that there are superior and inferior races of human beings that can be categorized by their skin color and their facial features. 
The problem with racism, and the reason for this extended background, is that a belief system that is propagated for over 500 years is going to work so deeply into the thought patterns and institutions of a society that people in it are going to struggle even to see it anymore. It's like asking someone what their house smells like. They can't tell you because it's all they know. It just smells like their house. Now, with that as our background, I want to look as I want to look as a case study at how the Bible was used and not used by Bible-believing Christians in their support of African slavery. And then to try and draw some lessons to help us not repeat some of their mistakes. The first place we need to turn is Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. This passage contains what came to be known as the curse of Ham and was perhaps the most quoted passage in justifying the enslavement and oppression of people of African descent. It'll help if you have the passage open in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible handy, pause the video and turn with me to Genesis 9, verse 18. Genesis chapter 9, starting at verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the vine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. This is the word of God. Now, this is a part of the story of Noah and Ark that seldom makes it into the Sunday school lineup. But if you asked a Bible-believing Christian about the curse of Ham in the 1800s, they could probably quote to you all of the details of this story and its implications. Many saw these three sons of Noah as the fathers of three races of humanity, black, white, and Semitic. And they believed that Ham's line was cursed and was destined by God to slavery because of Ham's sin. They might have even been able to tell you that the name Ham comes from an Egyptian word that means black. But this passage doesn't say anything about humanity being divided up into different races. The passage never says that Ham was cursed at all, only his son Canaan. Canaan certainly wasn't from Africa, and Ham may mean black in Egyptian, but Egypt didn't even exist when Ham got his name, and today nobody thinks that that's what the name means. In retrospect, it's clear that they read their own prejudices and assumptions into the passage and declared them as God's revealed truth. They acted as if racism was God's idea and believed they were standing on the word of God. 
This period of history should stand as a warning to all of us. But what does this passage teach anyway? We all know the familiar parts of Noah's story, right? He was a righteous man living in an unrighteous time. God was so grieved at human sin that he brought a flood on the earth and rescued Noah and his family through the ark. But the question the story leaves us with is whether that fixed the problem of sin. If God was starting over with a righteous man and his family, maybe Noah was the new Adam. Maybe humanity could have a fresh start and get it right this time. The passage seems to deliberately compare Noah to Adam. In verse 20, it says that Noah works the soil and plants a vineyard, the same way that Adam worked in the Garden of Eden. But in verse 21, Noah drinks from the fruit of the vine and crosses a line and gets drunk. And we're reminded of Adam who crossed the line and ate the fruit that God had commanded him not to. In verse 21, Noah is passed out unclothed in his tent. And it brings to mind Adam's nakedness in the garden. And while Ham stares at his father and seeks to expose his shame, Shem and Japheth cover their father's nakedness with a garment. And in so doing, they remind us of God himself who, back in the garden, made garments from animal skins for Adam and Eve and clothed them. The point of the story seems to be that the flood didn't resolve the problem of sin. Even the most righteous person on earth was still following in the path of Adam. And the warning was that a little sin in Noah resulted in a bigger sin in Ham and would one day result in an even greater sin in his grandson Canaan, an eventual judgment on Canaan's descendants. The Israelites would hear this story and understand that the Canaanites were cursed not because of what Ham did, but because they acted the way he had. In fact, they, they expanded on his sin and, and were the natural result of it. Despite all of this, God still promises a blessing, and he declares that it'll come through the descendants of Shem, the line through which Abraham, David, and eventually Jesus Christ would come. Now, even though we've gone through it quickly, it should be fairly obvious that this passage teaches us nothing about racism or the peoples of Africa whatsoever. And yet church-going slave owners would quote this passage to convince themselves that they were doing God's will and convince their slaves that this was all God's idea. They made him out to be a racist. Is it possible that you and I are doing something similar today? Could there be scriptures that we're misusing to make us feel better about our sin? The misuse of the Bible was one of the ways that churchgoers supported their racism and discrimination. The denial of certain scriptures was another. In particular, many denied and ignored the Bible's teachings on the image of God. Now, when Gomez de Zarara introduced the idea of an inferior race destined for slavery, wouldn't it have been great if the church had risen up in opposition? Wouldn't it have been incredible if European Christians had stood in solidarity with the peoples of Africa, Asia, and the Americas and said, we are one race created in the image of God. And to be sure, there were some who did. 
but their voices were drowned out by the deafening silence of so many others who didn't. If they had let the Bible break down their prejudices instead of using it to support them, they might have gone to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. There they would hear God's words in creation. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It shows that while we exist in two genders, we make up a single human race. And from this simple, single pair, humanity would grow to display wonderful diversity of appearance, language, and culture. But we would all share a common history, common brotherhood and sisterhood, and a common creator. And we're not just smart monkeys. The passage declares that we're created in the image and likeness of God. That's something that's not said of the rest of God's creation. Many religions make images of their gods, a focus of their worship. But the God of the Bible consistently forbids people from making images of him because we are the ones created to bear his image. We've been created to represent God, to reflect his goodness. And we've been made in his likeness. Genesis 2, 7. It says that God breathed into us the breath of life. And so we have a spirit as well as a physical body. We're not just animals. We're uniquely created for fellowship with God himself. And that's why C.S. Lewis famously said, there are no ordinary people. And what he meant by that is that regardless of where you were born or the color of your skin or the size of your bank account or the number of letters next to your name, you have dignity and honor because you've been created in the image and likeness of God. And the Bible says that there are implications to that, 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 that should matter. Genesis 9, 6, for instance, grounds our ethics in this. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It's saying that a recognition that a person is created in the image of God should change the way that we treat them. We should relate to every person with a sense of respect because there's something sacred about people. And not just the people that look like you and talk like you, that sacredness is a part of all people because God has created all of us in his image. James builds on this in, in chapter 3, verse 9. That's where he, he talks about the danger of our tongue and, he, and how we speak. And he says of the tongue, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And then he says that it ought not to be so. Do you see how he uses the phrase, made in the likeness of God? You can't claim to worship God and talk disrespectfully about people made in his likeness. You can't speak as if they're inferior or below you. You can't use words that demean them or write them off. 
And that's exactly what Gomez de Zarara did. And for hundreds of years, people followed in his footsteps. Do you treat people as God's image bearers? Do you speak of people who differ from you with honor and respect? Are your words and actions dictated by your prejudices or by God's word? Racism could never have taken root in the church if we took seriously God's creation of all people in the image of God. And yet it remains an issue today. Many Bible-believing Christians ended up supporting African slavery because they misused parts of the Bible and ignored and denied others. But the final reason many of them supported racist ideas and practices was that they heard what they wanted to hear. And you and I face that same temptation today. If you just hear what you want to hear, you're likely to be influenced by our generation's Gomez de Zarara or anyone else Satan might use to stir you toward evil. Consider some of the questions that come based on the warnings of Scripture. First of all, do you make quick conclusions based on one-sided arguments? The book of Proverbs warns about this. Proverbs 18.17 says this, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Do you think deeply about issues and really listen to the other side? Or are you just interested in hearing from your side? And do you test what you hear to ensure that it's from God? Are you like the Bereans of Acts 17, 11? It says of them that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If you only ever hear what people tell you the Bible says, even if that's me telling you what the Bible says, and you never read it discerningly for yourself, you're an easy target for the next Gomez de Zarara. There were many thoughtful Christians who spoke out against the slave trade and racism. But if you're involved in it and you've got something to lose, it makes it hard to listen. And the same is true today. Do you listen to teachings that disagree with you? Are your favorite sermons the one that, ones that tell you what you already believe? <laughs> Zechariah 7, uh, 7 verse 11 warns against this. It warns against having a hard heart towards hard teachings. It says this, They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears, that they might not hear. It's a warning about how we hear and our willingness to listen, our willingness to hear from God, and our willingness to admit that we're wrong. Finally, 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 3, it gives us uh, another warning. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teacher, teachers to suit their own passions. They just gathered together people that agreed with them. There were times where you would have racist churchgoers who found racist pastors who had gone to racist seminaries and they read the racist editorials that had been written by racist writers. They listened to racist political speeches and voted for racist politicians. 
They talked to racist neighbors and sent their children to racist schools. And so they never even had to consider whether racism might in fact be evil and fatally flawed. And that's not just a historical reality. We can do very similar things today. We can so immerse ourselves with news sources and entertainment, podcasts, and a social media feed that is constantly telling us what we want to hear. And the result is that we only ever hear our own voice. And as people in the past have mistakenly done, we convince ourselves it's the voice of God. And so I want to ask, are you misusing parts of the Bible? Are you denying or ignoring parts of the Bible? And are you hearing what you want to hear? Those are questions that I think we all need to ask and we need to be willing to listen. As I've asked those questions of myself, one of the first things that stood out to me was the fact that I've never preached a sermon on racism. In fact, I've never even heard a sermon on racism. How could that be? It can't be because it's not an issue or a sin. It can't be because the Bible has nothing to say about it. And it's not because there aren't plenty of churches and pastors who are preaching on the topic, because there are. I think it's because I've heard what I wanted to hear. I think it's because I've ignored the parts of the Bible that address it. And with God's grace, I want to do better. I pray that you'll let these questions sink in and invite the Holy Spirit to examine you, to reveal blind spots and stubbornness and attitudes that don't reflect God or his word. And if that feels overwhelming, let me share what I believe is our greatest help in dealing with these issues. We read earlier about how Shem and Japheth, when they learned of their father's shame and nakedness, walked backwards into his tent and covered him up. They learned that from God himself. He had provided a covering for Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And he did that to point to the ultimate covering for our shame that would be provided by Jesus' death on the cross. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God covers your shame with his righteousness. And that gives you the courage to admit where you've been wrong. It gives you the confidence to confront your sin because you know that there's forgiveness to those who repent. But here's what happens. Without faith in Christ and his covering for our sin, we try and cover ourselves with our fig leaves. We deny our sin and try to justify ourselves. We avoid difficult conversations and try to convince people it's not our problem. Without Christ's covering, There's no hope for our growth or our change. So if you don't know him, come to him today. He's our righteousness. He's our covering. And he's the perfect image of God. He saves all who come to him in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the only one who can show us the blindness in our heart. You're the only one who can reveal to us ways that we have resisted you, ways that we have failed you, ignored you, and denied you. And so I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. 
I pray that you would bring humility. Help us to listen. Help us to receive from your word and be changed by it. And I pray, Father, that we would begin in every encounter with people that we would see in them the stamp and the imprint and the image of God. That we would see them as precious and sacred. And that we would treat them with the respect that your image deserves. That we would honor them and respect them and speak of them as those whom you have created. Change us, Father. And help us to bring our shame before you, confess our sins, and to receive from you the covering that Jesus Christ made possible on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, today's message has just scratched the surface of what God's word has to say about racism and discrimination. I hope that it's helped you examine some of the ways you might be misusing or denying or ignoring parts of the Bible. And I pray that it'll help you to see people of all backgrounds as sacred because they've been created in the image and the likeness of God. If you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share this message and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.